Hey everybody, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I started along with my writing site, which is called Decide Nothing on Substack. The podcast now has a life of its own as brothers and teachers. The mission of the show is to honor people, especially men, who embody positive presence and who have been teachers who I love and respect and who I want the world to get to know more deeply. Today I'm talking with Bill Maeda, a very humbly self-described 54-year-old married dad, a lifelong athlete and personal trainer, and something of an accidental TikTok star. Although Bill has been into fitness and physical training since he was a teenager, his journey to finding his strength again in middle age after a bout with cancer and depression is particularly inspirational. And that, along with his warm, open, direct, and very funny presence, is what's led him to have millions of followers. I reached out to Bill totally out of the blue, and he very generously accepted my invitation because he wanted to be part of the mission of what I'm doing with this show. I'm very grateful to Bill for taking the time, and I'm very happy to be able to share our interview with you here today. As you listen, you might scan the questions at the bottom of the show notes, or just consider this. What is your relationship with your own body and your physicality? And how does your body, your strength, and your physical wellness relate to your identity as a person and to your mental health? If you're interested in what you hear today, please do visit decidenothing.substack.com and subscribe to get updated whenever I publish new writing or podcast episodes. Anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will get a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. And with that, please join me in welcoming Bill Maeda to Brothers and Teachers. So when you got this anonymous email from me, what was it that made you feel to say yes? I like the feel of your email. I believe whatever the spirit of the writer was when they actually wrote that, it kind of abused that email. You know, so so the, even though it seems like an digital communication, I still feel like emails, pictures, even handwriting, they carry the essence of whatever the state that person was in. Like I, you know, I like that you kind of just told me about that you live in a place that I really am very fond of. You know, when I was a little kid, uh, we lived for a couple of years in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And all the really cool, fun pictures that we have from that time, for some reason, we were in Sausalito or... Awesome. Yeah. I like the introduction. You know, he, there was that gentleman, he's quite an accomplished martial artist. Yeah. yeah. Cameron Shane. I don't know him well. You know, I just met Cam for the first time a couple months ago. Went up to his shop there up in Montana and uh, yeah, quite an interesting cat. I, have you crossed paths with him? No, I haven't, but I did check him out and yeah, it looks pretty cool. Yeah, he's a mover. Yeah. You know, we're all the same age and uh, someone like yourself who has developed and maintained a very strong physical practice. On that point, you certainly seem like a very physical person. I'm sure there's a lot more to you and all of us, but I want to ask you, where did that start and how does your physicality and your physical practice relate to your sense of self? I mean, it seems like that must have come in for you very early in life. 
Okay, so I was always kind of a, uh, you know, that proverbial hyperactive kid uh, when I was young. I just had a lot of energy and, you know, I got in a lot of trouble at a very early age. Not like teenage years, I was getting in trouble in kindergarten. Back in the 70s when I was that young, they didn't even call it ADD or ADHD or whatever. They, they, it was called hyperkinesis. Yeah, you moved too much. Yeah, I was right. a hyperkinetic child. So I was always kind of wild that way. I also struggled in school. I couldn't concentrate too well. So I quickly fell behind. I felt really stupid. like just like dumber than the other kids because, you know, mm. my grades were terrible. I was always confused. Math always just baffled me. And mm. I tried, but my grades were just bad. But I was kind of always a strong and fun, you know, I was always telling jokes. I'm getting kicked mm-hmm. out of the classrooms all the time, getting in trouble. So <laughs> yeah. that kind of became my identity was to be, okay, well, I'm never going to be the smartest guy in the room, but I'm going to be fun and I'm going to be on the playground or on the field. I'm going to be something to be reckoned with. And then in my teen years, I got kind of tied up a little bit of drugs and not heavy, but, you know, started smoking the weed. I, I can't drink alcohol. I'm allergic, but I did like weed. Yeah. And... And then for a while, I started using that. Like a lot of people, oh, I found a solution to my problems. I just need to smoke some weed and you know, I'll, yeah. And first, a uh, short while it seemed to work, but then I, I started to sh- see the shortcomings of that. Around the same time, I started getting to weightlifting. It was kind of weird. I, the coaches at school would always bug me about lifting weights because you know, in Hawaii, I was considered a bigger kid. So was this like high school, like fifteen or so? I imagine. Yeah, high school. Exactly. I got up to six feet tall when I was about 15 years old. And for an Asian person living in Hawaii, six feet tall and 175 pounds, that was considered really big for my generation. So I was always being bugged by these coaches to join the wrestling and football and weightlifting. And I've never really been into sports. It's kind of weird. I was going to a private school, but my Mm -hmm. grades were so bad that I decided that I should leave. The other school I went to was like this alternative school, kids like me. It was actually a better move for me, but that's where I learned to really smoke the weed. In fact, the yeah, teacher proctored smoking breaks, right? So it was at that kind of school. But they had a weight room. The private school I went to had like this beautiful weight room, like a college level weight room. I didn't touch it because I thought that's for those guys. You know, was, I used to mock the guys that would lift weights. Like, oh, those are just those muscle guys. I realized now it was jealousy, yes. but I had this attitude about the football players and yes. any of the jocks or any of the guys that went to the weight room back then when I was 15 and super insecure. I had the same feeling, man, in high school in that, you know, when I saw the guys that were doing team sports, football, that sort of thing, I was like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to uh-huh. be the jock. I don't want to be the right. big dude, the sort of muscle dude, the macho guy. And there was also some jealousy, you know, mm-hmm. which did lead me to reject that. And, you know, I didn't really come around and find my way to seeing strong physicality in a different light for a long time. It sounds like you went into the weight room at some point and you began to see the value of that. It, it felt good to you. It was strange. I started not a modest pot habit. I dove right in at this new school. This weight room at the new school was literally a tool shed with a dirt floor. It was completely the opposite of my other school with a college level weight room. But because at the new school, these were tougher kids. I mean, they came from kind of privileged backgrounds, but they still came from tougher places than I did. 
And so a lot of them started teasing me and I dressed like very prep school because that's all right. I knew. Right. And right. these were a bunch of like local surfer kind of guys. And right. so I'm going to school with my little button down shirts and everything. And they're giving me shit during lunch when everybody would kind of uh, click up into their little groups. Right. I didn't have one because I was right. just like this misfit from the private school. So <laughs> I went down and I would just eat my lunch and I'd lift weights. And I was a little bit high all the time. There's, and if there are young people listening to this, please don't think that, oh, to be like Bill or to do what Bill's doing, <laughs> start smoking weed at 15 and lift weights because there's a huge downside to this. We'll yes. discuss, I'm sure, soon. But I found that lifting weights, I would get kind of like in the state. Mm-hmm. And whereas other people would smoke and just want to lie down and chill, I really felt like, man, this is my thing. Some guys would smoke and go surfing. I would smoke and I would lift weight. What I'm imagining is maybe kind of help with the, you know, the anxiety that you were feeling or just let you, you know, kind of do your thing. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. You know, I wouldn't make a recommendation in that direction, especially at that age, because I did the same yeah. thing. I you know, smoked a lot of grass. I, I did a lot of drugs at an early age. And did some damage. For sure. So you really started to feel this new physical activity in yourself then and how good it felt to do that. That became my new drug. When I would smoke, I'd actually get a little paranoid. Yeah. I felt more relaxed, but when I got around the people I'm trying to impress or whatever, Mm -hmm. I'd get more nervous and more bumbly with my words and more stupid. And so I was like, oh, God, this is frustrating because I feel like I'm more relaxed when I'm on weed, but I clearly am more of an idiot. But weightlifting got me a couple of things. I responded well to it uh, because by the time I was in this new high school, by that time, I was about 16 or so. And that's when, man, I started to really kind of develop quickly. Yeah. And the, the, the same guys that were giving me all this hard time about being the preppy and all this other stuff. Right. Um, I, when they saw me starting to literally develop, they started following me down to that gym at lunch. Right, they were all right. smoking and lifting weights. Awesome. And yeah, by the end of the year, we were all good buddies. Right. And then I realized, oh, this thing is kind of cool because, it, you know, the weed wasn't getting me ready friends. It actually made me more of a dummy, but it got me enough into the weights where people were noticing what I was doing with the weights. And one of them came down and watched me one time. He's like, dude, and he told these other these surfer guys, oh, bro, you got to watch this guy lift weights, man. It's a trip. So then the, a bunch of them would go down and then they would want me to teach them. And that's why from literally that time until yeah. current. All I've ever done is I've been a trainer. I've never worked really any other job. So it sounds like you had such a strong affinity for it that other people saw it in you right away. And also you began to teach, which is often what happens when we find something that we have a real affinity for. Wow. So cool. It's weird that I had to get kicked out of the school that had the great weight room. Right. And all those coaches who were willing to teach me. But actually, you know, it's not a total bummer because after I started getting into the weights, I went back to my old school because my sister and my brother were still going to that school. My school got out a little earlier, which allowed me to get over to my old school, my previous private school. Right. And then when the weightlifting coach saw me, he said, dude, I don't care whether you go here or not. You are welcome in this weight room anytime. Awesome. So I was started going to that weight room after school. Yeah, And uh, working out with him and then things really start to take off from there. I was able to get the best of both. What you just mentioned there is something else that I've often noticed to be 
very powerful, which is mentorship, but also an invitation. This coach, even though you weren't even at that school anymore and had left on mixed terms, saw what you were doing and who you were becoming and invited you back, right? Invited you back to work out with him. Yeah, he was the coolest guy. Yeah. That's a very powerful move, isn't it? It was. In fact, a shout out to Jack Gardner, my old buddy and my coach and teacher from high school, because if he didn't make that offer to me, I mean, I still would have done it, but it was nice to do it there and with his tutelage and expertise. Worked out great. Yeah. That's great to hear that that invitation just as a thing in life, when we can invite someone else into our world, whatever it is that we are doing, it's just such a powerful thing, you know, and to feel that from someone else, a very positive thing. Yeah. It was life-changing. Beautiful. Well, let me ask you this. When do you feel that you became yourself, like the version of yourself that you are now? Recently. Recently. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Tell me. In 2012, so about 11 years ago, I uh, was diagnosed with a stage 3C colon cancer. It was quite advanced. It was at a stage where I got pushed to the front of the line. What they saw on the images of my colon was uh, spooky enough for them to put me right at the front for surgery or follow-up chemotherapy and everything. So I was in my early 40s when I went through oh, six months of some pretty intense chemo and some follow-up treatment. And then in the years following, literally from 2013 up until Hawaii locked down for the pandemic in 2020, it was a seven-year period of decline for me. Number one, I didn't realize I had this arrogant delusion that cancer doesn't happen to me. And like, no, I spent way too much time and money and effort on my health and this and that and supplements. No. I was a little disillusioned after that. And it was actually kind of good. It was a, like I said, a reality check. I mean, why would anybody really think that they're immune to cancer? My sense of reality at the time was just skewed. And it was kind of a confusing period because, you know, by then I was kind of into my 40s and going towards 50. So you hear about all these changes that are supposed to occur in your body, but the amount of ability I lost in the years following that treatment, the cancer, me was was way more than it should have been. Even to this day, my joints almost feel like there's no cartilage. When I had cancer, I was 210 pounds. Now I'm in better shape than I've ever been, but I come in at 195. I mean, you know, I've lost. So anyway, the period of time leading up to the lockdown in 2020, I was kind of functionally depressed. I had personal training client. You know, I had my business here and I was just doing my thing as always. CrossFit became very popular in 2013 and 2014. And that had a significant impact on my personal training business. So, you know, you combine kind of like struggling with my business with just trying to get, yeah, everything was a struggle. I couldn't get myself back physically. Yeah. And I'd try to work out the same way. I could do the workouts that I was doing before I had cancer, but it would take me five days to recover. Yeah. And I couldn't yeah. do anything else. So clearly yeah. that was not the way to work out anymore. And that's how I ended up going into these daily right. short 10 minute things. Now it's about 20 to 30 minutes. A lot of people watching my videos might think, wow, you're like a superman or you know, I don't have a lot of capacity in me. You know, yeah. I mean, given my past i do the best i can in that period of time 
And so your endurance has really been affected for one thing. I would say, yeah, like I'm not going to be training for a Spartan race or anything. You know, I'm being honest with myself. I kind of have this window of energy and recovery that I got to kind of stick close to. I hear you, man. I appreciate you sharing your story. You know, it comes through loud and clear that that was a real crucible for you, that it was a big shock and that it really took you down and then took you more than a decade to kind of come through and integrate. Two things come to mind. One is that as a person whose identity developed right along with your physicality, something that impacted your vitality so directly, of course, it went also to your psyche, right? To your mental right. state and emotional yeah. state. I've just had some sciatica lately. Nothing life-threatening, but you know how it is. When you're in pain, yeah. it affects the whole organism top right. to bottom. And so... You know, you've mentioned this and you've said it again to me just now that you felt like you were depressed. And I've been there too. I've spent years with that in various ways. But going back to your original question of like, when did I find or kind of define myself as who I am currently? Yes. It had to do with that depression because I realized from doing what I've been doing the last few years since 2020 till now, that not only... Following my cancer, was I depressed? I actually believe, knowing what I know now, I've been depressed since I was a child. Because you know, that start in life that I described to you, it was not very inspiring. I grew up in a beautiful home. My parents provided lavishly for me. They educated me. They clothed me. My world was extremely safe. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah. Also, it didn't learn or I was shielded from challenge and adversity. Um, my problem was that from the time I was young until well into my adult years, I wasn't really challenged. I didn't know it, what it was like to overcome hardship until that cancer. That was the first um, hard thing that I had to deal with. And I didn't really do that great a job with it. I deserve zero credit. Anyone yeah, can get cancer and just lay there and languish. It was my wife yeah. that did everything. So sorry, shout out to my to sweet Pete. But anyway, Beautiful. going back to the depression thing, yeah. knowing what I know now, I've been depressed since I was a little kid. And if people are yeah. wondering, because I would have loved to have heard this from somebody. People think, oh, if someone's depressed, their head is down. They talk like you're, and you know, he's like, oh, true. You know, just. Right. Was, no, they think no. you're supposed to look bummed out or have your head down on the table, you know, sobbing. Right. And no, now I know that some of the most dynamic people that I personally know or I have seen on television, yeah. like if I meet someone at a party and they're like the life of the party kind of guy, and you yeah. go up and they give you the double handshake, go, oh, bro, I've heard so much about you. Yeah. And they give you this bit. That most likely is someone who's struggling with depression. I've learned yeah, that because I used to be that point. guy. I used yeah. to always varnish all of my insecurity right. yeah. and all of my fear in yeah. either aggression or being like exuberant, <laughs> too exuberant. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. That, I realized when we locked down, uh, you know, I'm sorry, the world went through hell during that time, but that period of time for me was extremely significant it allowed me to really take stock of my business what i was doing uh, myself as a person i didn't realize i was depressed or that i was 
as insecure and beautiful. You know, like everybody, within a few weeks of lockdown, I was doing some Zoom sessions with some of my clients, but I still lost a lot of business. Yep. Um, so I had extra time. And one of my clients, uh, we were just talking about, hey, man, I, while we're locked down, what would help you work out at home more? Because you're doing great when you see me, but you only see me twice a week. How can I help? Right. He says, you know, are you working out right now? And, you know, honestly, I wasn't because my right. training really fell off. It deteriorated. So by the time 2020 came around, I was barely training at all. So he says, here's what he challenged you. <laughs> he challenged me. He said, I tell you what, if you post your video, like yeah. just next time you work out, just put on video and then put on YouTube and send me the link. And I promise I'll work out for at least the same amount of time. I said, it worked, yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, that afternoon I did that. I sent him the link and uh, right. I'll fast forward that she never yeah. worked out. I did that three days in a row. And that third video, for some reason, it went like mini viral. Right, right. And I started getting comments from people from Brazil and Spain and Delaware. Yeah. yeah. They were the nicest comments. They were just like, hey, that was yeah. cool. Are you doing this right now? Can we follow you? Or I didn't have Instagram at the time. I didn't know what TikTok was. There's just YouTube. So for over a year straight without without missing a single day, yeah. from the first video until well past the year, I posted my daily workouts and it yeah. kept me consistent. And yeah. during that period of time, I only allowed myself 10 minutes, but relative to what I was, it got me in really good shape. And I was like, this is cool. By then I had people following yeah. the comments that I was getting and my interaction with all these different individuals made me realize number one, how isolated I was because yes. for like the last 15 years up until that point, I would yes. come to this office. This is a 600 square foot box. Yeah. It's a room. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I knew exactly who I was going to see, exactly how long I was going to see them. And right. I'm the one that wrote the agenda. I mean, I love every person I trained with, but there was no texture, no yeah. challenge, nothing. Yeah. And that's another thing. So isolation and lack of challenge, or those are all great ingredients for being depressed and then have a base of, when you're a kid, you feel like you're a loser from the time you're in kindergarten. How can you not be depressed? But I, like everybody else, thought depressed with people look depressed or they act depressed. Yeah, it's often inside, right? It's that disconnect between what we show to the world and what's going on inside. The number one defining characteristic for depression or cause of depression usually is lack of connection, right? Yeah. And it sounds like that it was part of your experience. And especially during COVID, once this guy invited you essentially to post your work at the YouTube, that was a huge doorway to you, to connection. And you began to experience that with people all over the world. Well, yeah. You know, I never considered myself alone because my wife, my two daughters, my family is small, but we're close. So I almost felt it was ungrateful for me to consider myself alone. Because how can I be alone? I have my wife sure. and we can talk for hours. And I never felt alone in the sense, but I've learned yeah. that you've got to have unpredictable interactions. Yeah. Like, great point. You know, things that you have to scramble a little or keep you on your toes. I didn't know that before. I just thought that if you have a best friend and a good wife and your kids don't hate you, then you're not yeah. alone and everything should be fine. And if you have a problem, then that's just your fault. I used to think there's too many people and they're all in my way. 
But mm-hmm. now I look at it as of all the people that I simply talk to, either we correspond in writing or we speak like this or just on the phone. Say I live 85 years. At the end of my life, you add all those people up. Each one of them, those people are all precious. They took time, not just to watch my videos, which I greatly right. appreciate, but to actually touch to that write something, little part yeah. and to write something using their fingers. I never lose sight of, of what each person puts. Even if they write, you suck, I hate you, die. They still took time and effort <laughs> to watch right. enough of my content to form that opinion totally. and yeah. then use a part of their physical body to send me that message. That's another person on the end of that message. And I still love that person. It's a connection and they can hate my guts or whatever, but I'm grateful they gave me a try. I feel so, you so much, man. You know, I'm a San Francisco native. I was born here. I grew up here. I've lived here most of my life. As much as I've tried to get away from San Francisco, and I have, even so, I have lived here most of my life. But it's a pretty small city. And as a San native, I know a lot of people here. I know a lot of right. people. And whenever I meet someone new, it's just about guaranteed that we're going to know someone in common, that we have some sort of mutual connection. And oh, yeah. It, those connections, that's the treasure, man. That's that's what life is all about in a way. My own experience with depression was also a lot about isolation and also about using drugs when I was young. I did a lot to work on that depression and work through it. But one thing certainly was to make a conscious effort to connect with more people and to connect more deeply. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, you're very articulate about yourself. You seem pretty self-aware and you're able to talk about your state of mind and your emotional state. Where did that come from? I mean, have you done a lot of therapy along with all of this lifting? Or was that just credit to your family and friends? I've done almost no therapy ever. I was always a sensitive kid. If somebody said something to me, like insulted me, or if I got yelled at by my teacher or my mom, it would really hurt my defensive mechanism to being that sensitive was to be, okay, you're not going to hurt me. So I started getting aggressive. Like I said, I've never hurt anybody, but I just projected this thing like, don't mess with me. I'm going to, yeah. There were times where someone would cross me. So I would say something that would sometimes really hurt or Mm -hmm. I would embarrass that person because I was good at figuring out what to say in a group to make someone look really like not good. Yeah. I have a strong moral compass. You know how you can't not burn your finger when you touch a stove? That's how my moral compass is. If I have truly done wrong by somebody, I know it. Like if you have to ask, is this wrong? It most likely is. Yeah, you know it is. So yeah, I would sometimes have interactions with people or just do something, or maybe I'll do something that nobody saw, take something that I shouldn't have. Sure. And it would bug the shit out of me. And it just yeah. wouldn't stop. So I guess one of the things that makes me a little more introspective is in order for me to come to terms with that, I couldn't rationalize it or justify it. I actually had to figure out a way to make it right. And I like to apologize. In the 70s and 80s, I guess, you know, men weren't supposed to say I'm sorry. But my dad taught me strongly the value of saying you're sorry. And he demonstrated that a lot. By apologizing, when he and my mom would get into it, he would later on, you know, bring her back, say, hey, can I sit down? And he wasn't too proud to apologize to her 
in front of us. He wouldn't make it like a feel, okay, I want you on the stand run. I want you to see how it's done. It wasn't like a contrived thing. It was natural. This thing where I would just happen to walk by and he'd be talking to my mom and just saying, you know, I'm sorry, you're right. And so between that example and just basically being very prone to guilt, that's why I don't have problems. I don't hide things from people. You know, I'm not yeah. a college graduate. You know, a lot of times people, you know, they'll try to get a certification that they can put some kind of letters after their name. I stopped doing that a long time ago. Um, it sounds to me like you said, you felt like a sensitive person and that you were aware of, well, the truth is what it feels like to me. You said a moral compass, right? It's something inside that tells you what's true. And yeah. my feeling is when I can sense that, I'm obligated to follow it, to express it, to, to say it, to, you know, to do that. And I mean, if I don't, then I get real problems. It's part of having a sense of oneself. Yeah. Yeah, and I just found, like, for purely selfish reasons, that the more I stuck to that, you know, basically, instead of looking at how can I win, which is kind of the way I looked at life when I was a lot younger, like, how can I win or what's the best outcome for me? I had a client when I was still very young. His business philosophy was the win-win. He was a very successful guy. And I asked him, well, how are you, why are you so successful, man? Right. He just said, man, I, you know, when every negotiation I go to, I know the other guy is trying to figure out how they can get the most for themselves. Sure. I go into that as how can we both get the most for each yeah. other from, you know, what's the win-win. And I always thought yeah. that was kind of a cool way of, uh, of looking at things. Basically being honest and being kind to other yes. people. I would be the guy, I'd go to the mall and there'd always be some dick at the mall that I'd end up like, fuck you, you know, that kind of a thing, right? Or I'd get in like a little argument with someone in the parking lot. And that was like, oh, every week there was something. And then as I started to kind of bring my thing down and start going to have the parking stall, man, you want to cut me off? That's cool. Fine. Whatever. As soon as I started like changing that the people in my world were all replaced with cool people. Totally, man. I, who also would let me go. It's a great practice. I do the same thing. Someone cuts me off. I'm like, all right. Yeah, but, you know, it's all yeah. yours. I just try not to get mad. And I'm a lot more patient with people. You know, after you have kids, you start realizing that's somebody's kid. That's somebody's yeah. mom. That's somebody's yeah. dad. Before I said, okay, that person's in my way. Now you're in my way. Yeah, Can you yeah. please get out of my way? Cause I'm coming. I mean, for me, it was having kids because like some young kid cuts me off. And like that guy could probably be my daughter's classmate, you know? Right, right. What am right. I going to do? Chase him down and beat his ass? No, I just, he's yeah. a kid. Let him go. I want to ask you about, about fatherhood and about your kids, but there's another question that comes in before that because I was listening to another interview that you did recently and you brought up violence, right? And you and actually the guy that I mentioned in my introduction, Cameron Shane, are the only two people yeah. that I've met that have even used that word. Now, okay. you and Cameron use it the same way. That is, you're not talking about aggressive violence against people. About mm -hmm. I want you to tell me what you're talking about. I'm a big advocate of violent expression the simplest analogy would be like trying to hold every time you want to cough or sneeze not allowing yourself to do so you're not to 
you know, you just, you cannot cop. No, you know, there are certain attributes that got people here. I heard some evolutionary biologist or some anthropologist say the traits that make the human being the top of the food chain are the same traits that the Bible tells you mm. are sins. And these are considered survival skills amongst the people that study this. The ability to play dead, the ability to deceive and steal, the ability to, sorry, fuck a lot and procreate, and the ability to fight and kill, either to defend what is yours or to take what you don't have. I don't work out. I've never really cared about my pecs, my abs, my symmetry, my shoulder to waist, none of that. What I present on Instagram, byproduct of my philosophy and training, whether I'm doing with weights or whatever I'm working with, in some ways has to simulate an attribute of combat. Going really slow on certain things. That's so, you know, like if you wrestle certain guys and you lack as much technique as I do, and you try to just muscle, there's certain times where you are just locked in this full body arm wrestle thing with the other guy. And if you're like a 315 pound bench presser, but that bench is basically blasting the bar off your chest. So everything between the chest and the lockout position is momentum based. Yet you got some guy who weighs a half of like 140 pounds, but he's pushing down on you and you don't have that strength in between. All of my weightlifting in some way has to feel like fighting or make me better at fighting. And here's another thing. I don't practice fighting at all. I don't go to jujitsu. I don't have a dojo or a MMA studio. I haven't rolled or done anything with another person in years the reason why i'm big into this violent expression and training for combat is if a person doesn't have a defined objective for training Mm -hmm. training to fight well is a great scaffolding to build your program on and Uh here's why it's real simple combat is the only dire physical situation that 100 percent of humans walking this planet are prone to or I should also say 100% of the people on this planet are not guaranteed to never be attacked. If you simply don't ever go down to a field, you can guarantee yourself that you'll never be a victim of soccer. If you don't want to play baseball, don't go to a baseball field. If you don't want to swim, don't go near the water. But as long as you're around other people, the possibility of you being attacked or having to defend someone who's being attacked is omnipresent. It does exist, yeah. And that is why, so for that reason alone, but that's not compelling enough for most people to say, oh, there's a one in three million chances I might be attacked today, so I'm going to train for fighting. That's not why either. If you train to fight, the cardio, you'll have the strength, you'll have the agility and the ability to play any other sport you want to. Great point, man. I really appreciate that. I think my intuition was correct in that Cameron was saying the same thing. Not that we all have to go around defending ourselves all the time, but that the knowledge that you can defend yourself physically, if necessary, gives you a fundamental self-confidence that is super, super valuable. And then on top of that, what I'm hearing you say is there's a structure and a purpose for training 
it aligns your physical training with a fundamental human characteristic, which is our aggressive physicality. A lot of times in stress management, people are told, okay, do some deep breathing, take a walk, do some yoga, mellow out. And that's all great. But for me, that has never worked. Stretching, breathing, listening to chimes and all that other stuff. And here's why I'm a believer that not only does it not work for me, that it might not work for others as well. People are all built for combat. In earlier times, whether you were a male or a female, young or old, you had to be at least willing to, if not able to, fight. Yep. And fighting doesn't always mean killing another person or a woolly mammoth. You might have to fight the landslide that covered half of your cave. Right, And moving 10,000 rocks each person, that's the battle. I have a heavy bag back here, and I have various kicking shields in here for my clients because of the millions of years we have been fighting things if we don't fight on a regular basis we don't physically express the violence that wells up in our body like if you look at your body as a person mother's breast it's kind of a weird analogy every day that breast gets filled with milk with the expectation that a baby is going to come and remove that milk then more milk comes in right all this tension that people have in their muscles their tight neck their tight backs, the parts of the body that get tight, they're getting tight because the potential energy that they should be expressing is welling up and it's backing up into the system. Sort of like that geothermal steam that can get stuck under the ground and blows up Yellowstone or whatever. That cannot be removed with deep breathing. It might sound like I'm speaking in a derogatory way. No, those disciplines are vital and necessary. But I don't think they can substitute or replace violent expression. Like violent expression can be those guys that keep deadlifting and they're like, and their right. veins are sticking out and it looks like they are ripping something apart. You know, it doesn't have to be punching and kicking things, violently expressing yourself against your weightlifting. Or you'll see these guys running up a hill, sprinting. And he, I mean, you were just looking at them, you want to have a heart attack. They're in a war. Violence is something that we projected culturally for understandable reasons, but like so many other things, like sex, for example, if we don't have a relationship when it's not getting expressed and that energy just backs up in the body, backs up in our psyche and going to cause problems. So I want to talk with you about fatherhood. I'm not a father. And, you know, something that I learned fairly recently is that pretty much one third of Americans, men and women, are not parents. One third. Wow. I didn't know that. That makes me wonder, by comparison, what the number was 20 years ago. It's declining. So you're saying there are more people now without kids? Kids. That's right. And that makes sense in a way, though. I mean, economics the way they are now and... Like there's a lot more single, there's one child families way more now than there totally. was say 30 years ago, right? It is declining in general, but it's also a very personal thing and personal story and decision for every single person. You know, the question of right. whether to become a parent. And it's something that was not always crystal clear for me. You know, some people, they just know from the start, they want to be a father or a mother or they don't. You know, for mm-hmm. me, it was... A lot of back and forth over the years. And I've found that to be true for a lot of guys that I talk with. So how did you father? Was it 
you know, always kind of planned or was it something that just sort of happened? Was it something that you always knew that you wanted to do or? It's kind of weird. I always knew I was going to be a father, but I always didn't want to be one. Like I said, my mom and dad were the best. They were fantastic. You know, I truly felt loved and supported and provided. They did everything for me. They were uh, just fantastic parents. And my family experience was something I wanted. I didn't think ever in my adult life that I would not have in my teens and my 20s. And this weird thing where I was like, I'd look at families in restaurants with their kids screaming and throwing Cheerios all over the place. And I'd be like, why would anybody want that? I've been with my wife for 30 years, but we were together for 10 years before we ever got married. So, you know, before we got married, I would say all of this, this stuff, like having kids, that looks, you know, I'd just say some really negative things. But sure. at the same time, I, one of the reasons I really found my wife so appealing when I first met her was she was so good with kids. Well, it's a very attractive quality, yeah. It is, you know, especially in a, when you're in your early 20s and everybody is so self-centered like I was. And to find this person who was so young, yet she was so selfless when it came to not only just little kids, but older adults. And she was just she's just a really cool person. I was, I was like, wow. Fast forward, I was in my early 30s when I had my first child. It took me 10 years to get married. And it wasn't because I wasn't sure about her. I was just like, I was such a beast when I was younger that it took me 10 years just to calm down enough to get married. I just didn't want to mess it up for her. And then I was lucky enough that I had two daughters. So my first daughter, she's now 18. She's just left for college. And I also have a nine-year-old. I actually kind of learned from my wife how to actually raise a girl and relate to them. Mm. Now, I just, uh, I'm so happy. There was a time where I was still kind of the same jerk that I was, you know, like the first two years of my first daughter's life yeah. i was really disappointed at how little i was affected because i'd hear all my friends say oh when my daughter came out the sun and the moon and the stars all i heard the angels sing and then i was never the same again you didn't feel it at first not at all i just felt oh shit that's all i thought was oh shit yeah the first two years i was kind of not really there because i was just scared just like everything else back then i was scared of everything sounds like something changed there too in fact i heard you talk about this with someone else you were talking about this moment with your first daughter oh when she talked to me did she kind of tell you in a way dad i need you to change no she was two years old and you know i would come to the dinner table same way you see me in my videos just shorts and no shirt She'd be in her little high chair. And if my wife is in the kitchen, I'm just on my device. The kid is sitting there with all food running down her face. And one night we were having like beef barley soup and some sourdough bread. And I like really tough sourdough. I purposely cut the heel off and I even let it get a little dry. So I really have to rend it. You know, I, I like it that way. And so my daughter's sitting there in her high chair and I'm ignoring her. And I'm just rending on this piece of bread. And then I hear this dip it. And I look at her and I'm like, what'd you say? And she goes, dip it. And I'm all, dip it? What the? Because, you know, to me, kids were just these things that go and they cry and they scream. And and so I aimed it at the suit. And then she's looking at me like, okay, go bite it. And I bit it. She starts nodding her head. And I'm like, dip it. And then she just looks at me. She says, dip it. (laughs) That's amazing. And that's when I realized, like, what the fuck? You're two years old. 
Yeah. And how do you have an experience with tough sourdough bread right. to know that if I dip it in the soup, it's going to make it softer? Wow. That's beautiful. And I was like amazed at that. I was like, and that's, I told my wife, this is terrible. I said, that's when she became a human to me. And at that point, I realized you're like a person. You're not just this thing in diapers. You know, you hear people talk about paradigm shifts yeah. where you do a complete 180 and it yeah. sticks for good. Like, yeah. you know, people say, I went to this born again thing and I walked out a Christian or I saw my wife across the room and I knew immediately. I've never had that. But when she did that, I completely turned around and I immediately regretted how much I had been kind of neglecting her. And literally, that's the day where I became a dad. It wasn't in the hospital. It was dip it, then did it. It was dip it. <laughs> she observed what appeared to be a problem, then kind of tried to figure out a little solution, then offered it to me, guided yeah. me through it. She's like nodding her head, yep. like, go do it, stupid. I'm like, like this. And then I go like, oh, ooh, nice and tender. Yeah, yeah. Way, I don't like it. And <laughs> of course, I had to dip the entire thing and finish yeah, it that yeah. way because she wouldn't stop watching me. That's kind of when I realized, oh, these little children, they're quite special. Yeah. I was like, God, I was amazed. It. And then from that point on, if all I ever do, if the only reason I am here on this earth is that my daughters are good people that <laughs> go out and do good. If that's all I accomplished, then I'll be super happy. You know, like, yeah, of course I want to sift what I can offer as well, but I kind of got a late start on things. That's what I want for my daughters. And I tried to raise them that way to help others and they both are like that now so i think they'll do me proud but yeah yeah, yeah. i'm sure well that, that's such a great story man i love it but you know and yeah it sounds like that was even though you knew all along that you wanted to become a father that it took that dip it moment to really yeah you know make you aware of the person that was sitting across the table from you and right to her in that way yeah so cool so yeah. cool. And it wasn't anything personal against that child or any child. I was just sure. afraid of the concept of being a parent. Yeah. You know, I was just kind of a young bum back then. And I still wanted to go hang out with my buddies and just go over and watch yeah. the UFC and smoke some weed. You know, I was still stuck in like my 20s when I was in my 30s. And yeah, yeah, and I feel you. Actually, I still kind of am. But having those kids was everything for me. So I'm just really grateful and blessed. I appreciate that. I don't know if I ever got accused of being stuck in my 20s. And now it's like, okay, I'm stuck in my 50s. You know, that's a different thing. Right, for sure. That's just the reality of the situation. Right on, man. Well, just to wrap up then, is there anything that you find yourself afraid of? What are you afraid of, Bill? You know what I'm afraid of? And this sounds kind of strange doing what I do. As I learn more about what it is that I'm doing on the social media thing. Yeah. I have a constant worry. I mean, it's daily and it, it gnaws at me. And I'm not kidding. This is truly what I worry about is the disengagement of people from each other and the upcoming technologies that are going to make this what we think is a problem. Yeah. Way worse. Orders of magnitude worse. I believe that all of the social ills that will, that in front of us are going to come from human isolation. The way we treat each other, you know, the less we physically interact with each other, the more brutally we treat each other when we disagree. I'm not a huge social media presence, you know, I'm just me. But with what 
little influence people would allow me to offer them. I'm trying to figure out like, how can I, number one, help solve this problem of obesity and just lack of physical, you know, but that's the small thing. The bigger issue is people engaging with each other and trying to figure out ways to make that happen where it's not a virtual thing. You know, you and I being from another time, like I remember we'd go to parties and all you could do at a party, the biggest distraction at the party was like twirling the ice in your drink if you That's got it, nervous right. yeah. you couldn't go nothing oh. else to do like oh nobody thought to i better check them oh and make like there's some important thing to do on my phone right. no back in our day remember you just had to awkwardly yeah. like hold your drink and switch it to another hand it was human man i think in china they're doing this thing called bailan it means let it rot. And it's a counterculture revolt against P's thing of, you know, go to college and compete for jobs that don't exist and support your parents and their parents. Even though you were born in the generation where it's only one child. So now right. one child has to support four elderly people. So that generation, they're realizing Dude, this is an untenable situation. So a lot yeah. of them are literally dropping out. If they're not quitting their jobs, they're doing the bare I minimum. See. I'm not saying I want that for America, but I'm hoping that maybe a generation of kids will realize that we are so yeah. disconnected that they'll do a bylaw type of thing against this social isolation, like a good version of it, where they say, hey, everyone has to meet at Copyright Park. And if you have a device, you are not allowed in the park. You just have to go to the park. You can bring a ball, a frisbee, bring your dog, and just have people interact, you know, just something like that. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how we all learn to integrate the continued progress of technology. It's definitely a thing. What you're doing personally, putting yourself out there, expressing yourself and connecting with people that way, kudos to you, brother, because it's working, it shows, and that's what I'm trying to do as well with my writing and my podcast is connect with people that are embodying positive presence, right? And that are out in the world, connecting, being themselves and doing good work. So thank you for being you and for being here with me. Thank you, Barn. Appreciate that. And uh, yeah, no, it's a pleasure. This was fun. I'm glad it's great to hear more of your story. And I really appreciate you for being open and honest and sharing more of your personal history. Bill Maeda, awesome, man. What a pleasure to speak with you and meet you again. Thanks so oh, much likewise. for your time, man. You bet, Vaughn. That was no problem. Anytime. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please have a look at the questions that I've posted at the bottom of the show notes and consider commenting with your own thoughts on what we discussed in the episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe, recommend, share, and comment all right at the bottom of the page at decidenothing.substack.com, where all of my writing and audio lives or in your favorite podcast app. 
Just a reminder that anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will receive a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. And, of course, you can also reach me by email or on social media. Thanks again for being here, and I hope you tune in again soon.